everybody. Welcome to this beautiful theatre and to the National Library of Australia on this beautiful Canberra night. My name's Alex Philp. I'm the director here of Overseas Collections. As we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land we are now privileged to call home. I'm absolutely delighted to have you here this evening to hear from researcher Roger Lee as he takes us through the controversy surrounding Les Darcy and his decision to leave Australia during the middle of the First World War to pursue his boxing career. I'm also delighted to meet Les's niece, Margaret Darcy, out the front before. Margaret, there you are. Oh, and the nephew as well. Welcome. And the rest of the family. Glad to see you here. Now, Les Darcy is probably the most Australian name I've ever heard. Les Darcy. Our nation's sporting heritage has many called Les among the most famous and notorious. Among my favourites, Les Boyd, the hard-tackling uh, rugby league player in the 70s and 80s, and Les Favell, the cricketer who was the mentor to the Chapel brothers and taught them how to sledge. I'm known to many as a, as a very, very deep sports lover. But I have to admit, boxing's not really my thing. I'm very much way too timid. What I absolutely love about boxing are two things. It's the photography and the writing. There's a photo of Les Darcy shaping up to the camera in that well-known style from that era. His eyes are level, perfectly balanced and really threatening. My favourite bit of writing about boxing is Norman Mailer's piece on the Ali Foreman fight called The Fight. You should look it up. It's a beautiful piece of writing. Brings you right into the ring. But we're here tonight to talk about Les Darcy. Born on 31st of October 1895 and died 100 years ago today in Memphis, Tennessee. An extraordinary athlete and an idol to many. He was a middleweight but held the Australian Heavyweight Championship title at the same time. He started, uh, started in boxing at 15 as an amateur and quickly turned professional. Many people call him Australia's finest boxer. Now, Roger Lee has dedicated his time and energy to discovering the truth about this Australian legend. I'd now like to invite Roger to the stage to tell us more. Thanks, Roger. Thanks very much. <clears throat> uh, before I start tonight's talk, I'd like to thank the National Library for allowing me to give this presentation. The NLA and its online resource Trove are truly national treasures. The many others on whose expertise I've leaned or who have allowed me to use their images will be acknowledged at the, on, on the screen at the end of my talk. But I'd especially like to thank my wife, Alison, my family and friends for their tolerance over the last six years when I tried, often successfully, to turn every topic of conversation back to Les Darcy. <laughs> so let's begin. It's almost exactly, well it is exactly 100 years since Australian boxing legend Les Darcy died of septicemia in Memphis, Tennessee. He was 21 years old. News of his death was reported in papers across the world. Memorial services were held in Memphis. 
and San Francisco, where, um, just go back to that other slide, where the casket, draped in the stars and stripes and Australian flag, was taken to the docks in a special white hearse, followed by 500 mourners. Crowds paying their respects in Sydney and in Les's hometown of Maitland were unprecedented. No one had witnessed scenes such as these at the death of a sportsman. So what made Les Darcy an Australian legend? Why did he stow away to America? Why was he banned from boxing in the USA? Who was behind the ban and why did they do it? Tonight's talk will attempt to answer these questions. As we do so, we'll come across some famous men, heroes, spivs, spies, ratbags, even politicians. See if you can spot the one who shafted Les Darcy. According to Australian Sport, uh, Sport Australia's Hall of Fame, a sporting legend's record must show high achievement, peer respect, integrity, courage to overcome adversity, and unwavering determination. Les had all of them. Les's achievements compare well with those of Boxing Australia's other three legends, Johnny Famichon, Lionel Rose, and Jeff Fenich. He was clearly the hardest working, with 79 rounds per year. Only Jan Johnny Famichon comes close. But because of rule changes, the longest bout any of the others fought was 15 rounds, whereas 40 of Les's 50 round, uh, bouts were over 20 rounds and 11 went the full distance. All of Les Darcy's opponents spoke well of him. A top American middleweight who fought Les four times said, you people in this country think you have a good fighter in Darcy. Let me tell you, he is 10 times better than you think he is. I don't know the legitimate middleweight in the world he would not beat. Integrity. Les's integrity shines through his unwavering dedication to his family. He was a devout Catholic, but he also learned from others. People like Bill Ford, the blacksmith to whom he was apprenticed. Years later, Les sent Bill a postcard from America which read, Dear Mr Ford, we are touring all through the country. Still don't drink, smoke or gamble. With best wishes to you and yours, Les Darcy. From his earliest youth, Les Darcy showed great courage and determination. He was the second eldest of a family of ten children. His father was a labourer but also an alcoholic. Les's mother did her best to keep all the young males fed through selling milk from a small herd of dairy cows but it was a constant battle. Les's elder brother was disabled and from the time Les got his first wages, he did everything he could to support his family. But he was determined to box as well. Speaking about those years, he said, it seems as if I had an instinct for boxing. I used to wrap old shirts, rack, rags, anything I could get hold of, round my hands to serve as boxing gloves. Another fellow would do the same and we boys would box. I got some great hidings then, but I didn't care as long as I learnt something about the game. When he was 15, Les won his first professional fight against a 21-year-old, the start of an outstanding career at a time when boxing was hugely popular in Australia and worldwide. 
That year, there was another challenge to his determination. Les was apprenticed to Bill Ford, who didn't approve of boxing and made sure Les knew work at the forge came first. So Les went to church at 6 a.m., worked at the forge all day, then trained each evening, six days a week. Father Cody, mentor and friend, said, only a strong, resolute boy could have persevered in that tough schedule, but who was tougher? The punishing routine added great strength and endurance to other physical attributes that naturally suited him to boxing. By the time he turned 18, Les was the best young boxer in the Hunter region with 23 victories in Maitland and Newcastle. And boxing was the best way to help his family. Supported by his prize money, his parents were able to rent a small farm on Pitnacree Pitner Road, Maitland, East Maitland. But Les's determination was soon put to the test again. In 1913, the farm was inundated by catastrophic floods. His family lost everything. Les's father was a broken man. Realising it was up to him, Les resolved to free his family from poverty. He needed bouts in Sydney, but he ran into a brick wall called, named Snowy. Reginald Snowy Baker, managing director of Stadiums Limited, had been Australia's most versatile athlete, an Olympian in three different sports. Snowy was also a spiv. Known as the Great I Am, he drove a bright yellow sports car with brass serpents coiled around the mudguards. Described by one observer as the lariest thing you've ever seen. Regrettably, no photos have survived. Snowy wasn't about to let an unknown 18-year-old from the bush fight at Snowy Baker Stadium, but he soon changed his tune. In London, in April, Snowy met Australia's new Governor-General, Sir Ronald Munro-Ferguson, who expressed interest in seeing young Australian boxers in action. So on July the 18th, 1914, young Les Darcy had his first bout at the Sydney Stadium against a wily and experienced American boxer, Fritz Holland, then a contender for the World Middleweight Championship. It was a sellout. Extra trains had to be arranged from Newcastle to Sydney. At ringside, unannounced, was Sir Ronald, Ronald Munro Ferguson with two aides. Sir Ronald must have been impressed by Les's smiling entrance to a huge roar from the crowd, particularly as he was draped in an Australian flag and wearing green shorts, a patriotic Irishman. Les lost on points after 20 rounds, a correct decision, but the crowd didn't agree. They rioted, attempted to burn down the stadium and broke every window. <laughs> a new boxing star was born but events would soon conspire against Les Darcy. Two weeks later, Britain de declared war against Germany. As a British dominion, Australia was also at war. Australians responded enthusiastically, eager for the young nation to prove its worth to the, to the empire. Young men could have a paid adventure and see England and Europe. Les and two mates tried to join up, but being underage, they needed their parents' signatures. Les's mother threw his recruitment pa papers into the fire. He turned his attention back to boxing. Snowy Baker lost little time in ending Les's indentures and setting him up with a skillful trainer who later commented, so began the hardest year of my life. The combination worked. When their contract ended in November 1915, Les had won the Australian version of the World Middleweight Championship 
and defended it successfully five times. He was, he was Australia's most famous sportsman. Reports of his victories and interviews with he, boxers he had defeated had also made him famous in America. And he had a sweetheart, Winnie O'Sullivan. So Les had all the attributes of a legend, high achievement, peer respect, integrity, courage and determination. But that determination led to tragedy, which brings us to our other questions. What made him stow away to America? And why did Americans ban him? To answer them, we'll need to go back to May the 1st, 1914, when the first list of Australian war casualties was published. From that day on, Casualty lists appeared in the press every second day and casualty numbers grew. Imagine how it must have felt to those with husbands, sons or friends on Gallipoli or later at the Western Front. 500 today, how many more tomorrow? The war was no longer an adventure. Recruitment numbers fell and attitudes hardened. Able-bodied young men who didn't join up were labelled slackers. Wowsers called for racetracks and stadiums to be closed. But they couldn't criticise Les Darcy in June 1915 when he completed two weeks compulsory military training in Maitland as an armourer corporal in the 6th Australian Light Horse. Meanwhile, Snowy, aware of the threat to Stadiums Limited, responded by, by staging patriotic carnivals, fundraising events and recruitment rallies at the Sydney and Brisbane stadiums, but one went badly wrong. On July the 31st, 1915, before Les's world middleweight title defence against Eddie McGourty, New South Wales Premier William Holman and opposition leader Charles Wade, dressed in dinner suits, attempted to make recruitment speeches. The crowd responded by booing the politicians and then counting them out a PR disaster for Stadiums Limited. The South Australian Premier commented that if he were in Holman's position, he'd close the stadium and give anyone wanting to see a fight a free ticket to Gallipoli. That September, the Universal Service League was formed. Holman and Wade spoke at its first meeting. That month, Les heard one of his best mates had been killed at the Battle of Lone Pine. They'd tried to join up in 19, together in 1914. The news made him determined to join up, but he'd have to wait until he was 21. Until then, he'd concentrate on his other priorities. The house he was building for his family was going well, but how to be undisputed world middleweight champion? The world champion at the time was American Al McCoy. A year, early, a year earlier, the New York Morning Telegraph sport editor had written... The middleweight champion, Al McCoy, won't accept challenges. He's a lemon, a cowardly coyote, a puffball. Around his terrified tippy-toes, howl the wolves called Eddie McGorty, George Chip, Jeff Smith, Jimmy Clabby, Mike Dillon, and a hundred little-known middleweights such as Lester Darcy of New Zealand. <laughs> By October 1916, Les had knocked out McGorty and Chip, beaten Smith on a foul and Clabby on points twice, but the American authorities still wouldn't accept his claim to the title. If Les wanted to be undisputed world champion, he had to go to America. He had plenty of offers, including from an American boxing manager who tried everything 
even releasing a press statement falsely claiming Les had signed for a tour. Les didn't want to go then because he was building the house for his family, but the story reached other less sympathetic ears. The pressure on Les was building. In November 1915, the New South Wales Minister for Works was asked in Parliament if he had noticed newspaper reports that a boxer named Darcy was about to leave Australia. Did the minister know his destination and would he make inquiries with a view to in inducing those in charge of him to take him to Gallipoli or Flanders where he would have an opportunity of doing something for his country? Five days later, the Federal Executive Council introduced a regulation requiring all males over the age of 15 to obtain a passport before leaving Australia. Seeing his name mentioned must have made Les feel uneasy. At the end of 1915, Les moved his family into the house he had built for them in East Maitland. Now they had a home, Les could look to America. In the first week of January 1916, Hugh D. McIntosh, also known as Huge Deal, former boxing promoter, philanthropist and ratbag, offered to arrange a US tour for Les. McIntosh had connections, including New South Wales Premier Holman and Prime Minister Billy Hughes. Getting Les a, part, Les a passport shouldn't be a problem. Les agreed to meet McIntosh in, later in Sydney. In February, Hughes sailed for England where he was fated as a hero. He visited the Western Front and saw the conditions of the soldiers first, first hand. The British command told him that due to lack of reserves, they were considering breaking up the Australian divisions. He returned to Australia convinced of the need for conscription. Meanwhile, a near tragedy put even more pressure on Les. In March, Margaret Darcy became critically ill, almost dying after an operation in Maitland Hospital. Les returned home only to find his father con father's condition worse and his 15-year-old sister and 14-year-old brother too young to care for their five younger siblings and four-month-old baby brother. He was committed to joining up, but what would happen to his family if he were killed? He needed to make a lot more money and fast, another reason for going to America. He hired a lawyer to get a passport and offering a bond against his return to Australia. From March to, to September 1916, Les's career stalled. He easily beat all the opponents Snowy offered. Although he had trained with Maitland Lice Horse and tried to join up twice, his fame made him a target. In April, came the Easter uprising in, in Ireland and reports of the treatment of the Sinn Feiners by the British government. Sectarianism, sectarianism in Australia intensified. As Australia's most prominent sportsman who happened also to be an Irish Catholic, Les was guilty by association. Articles and letters attacking him and promoting conscription started appearing in the press, like this one. Will the Commonwealth Government issue this great sport a passport to enable him to run away from his obligations. On August the 15th, just before a bout in Brisbane, Les announced he was joining up. On hearing the news, Margaret Darcy was taken ill and sent him a three-word telegram, are you mad? Still underage, Les was forced to with publicly withdraw his announcement. That didn't satisfy Snowy. Upset at the bad publicity for Stadiums Limited, he convinced Les to sign a statement that on completion of his contract in six weeks, he wouldn't fight again until he joined up. 
and Stadiums Limited had a monopoly on boxing in Australia. Stadiums Limited had effectively conscripted Les Darcy. But on the train back from Brisbane, Les met Tim O'Sullivan, no, no relation to Winnie, by the way, racecourse tout and boxing manager who was planning to stow away to America before the conscription plebiscite. Would Les like to tag along? Les may not have believed O'Sullivan, but he had nothing to lose by showing interest. O'Sullivan said he'd make inquiries and contact Les again in Sydney. On August the 30th, Billy Hughes announced a plebiscite on conscription to be held on October the 28th. At a second meeting early in October, Hugh D. McIntosh produced a contract for a six-month vaudeville tour and three bouts in the USA for £5,000. But Les knew he could earn more from a single bout in America. The meeting ended acrimoniously. On October the 21st, O'Sullivan told Les he was leaving on a ship from Newcastle five days later. If Les wanted to go with him, he would make the arrangements. Les wanted Mick Hawkins, his first trainer and close friend, to go with them, but, but Mick couldn't because his father was critically ill. He warned Les not to trust O'Sullivan. Les faced a momentous decision. If he stayed in Australia, he'd be in the army in a few weeks, with the risk of being killed before ensuring his family's future. If Reg Delaney and Eric Newton, young, fit warriors just like him, had been killed, they were both his sparring partners, by the way, he reckoned his chances at 95%. But in America, win three or four fights and he'd be undis undisputed world champion. He'd proved he was good enough, and those few fights would set his family up for good. Then he would go to Canada or England and join up. He'd done the right thing, applying for a passport and offering a bond, but the authorities had refused him. Sure, people would criticise him if he went for, to the States, but once he joined up, they'd treat him as a hero again. He told O'Sullivan to go ahead. On the 24th, O'Sullivan confirmed that all was ready. The next day, Les said goodbye to Winnie and set off for Maitland. His mother and father, Cody, tried to convince him not to go, but he was determined. He said not to worry, he'd be back in six months. Margaret made Les promise to send for Mick Hawkins as soon as he could. That night, Les and Tim O'Sullivan stowed away to America. His appearance was international news. There were rumours he'd been kidnapped or had had an accident on his way to Melbourne for a return bout with George Chip. Once they knew their gold mine was on his way to America, Snowy Baker and Hugh D. McIntosh, now owner of the Sunday Times newspaper group, were furious. Under this headline, McIntosh's paper demanded that the government investigate the case and seize his property, and that the US authorities should refuse him entry as an undesirable immigrant, a disloyal pugilist with a yellow streak. But it didn't accuse Les of desertion or avoiding conscription. The accusation was avoiding home defence, as you can see there. A ridiculous charge because home defence only applied if Australia was under direct threat of attack. Les's actual offence against the War Precautions Act was leaving the Commonwealth without a passport. The bad press continued in Australia. Snowy Baker said Stadiums Limited had stripped Les of his titles and forgotten him. Winnie O'Sullivan was so upset that her father forbade her from reading the newspapers. 
Then her friend Lily Malloy, a young actress, was offered a Hollywood role. She invited Winnie to go with her. Her parents refused until Lily's aunt agreed to go as chaperone. Les had no idea they were coming to America and wouldn't find out until after they arrived. In New York, Les's arrival was a sensation. He was met by a flotilla of boats crammed with would-be boxing managers, led by a tugboat carrying the world's greatest boxing promoter, Tex Rickard. Tex took Les and O'Sullivan to a hotel where they held a press conference. Les denied he was a slacker and stated his intention to go to Canada or, in or England and join up after four or five bouts. Les wanted to fight straight away, but Tex wasn't ready. There was only one venue big enough for, fight, for the tech fight Tex had in mind, Madison Square Garden. It was for sale. Tex intended to buy it and stage about there between Les Darcy and French middleweight and war, war hero Charles Carpentier. But the negotiations would take time, so Tex arranged for Les to go on a vaudeville tour. He could see something for, of America and would be paid well. Mick Hawkins, who'd had no trouble getting a passport, joined Les after a few months, a few weeks, I'm sorry. But the tour drew poor crowds. The press, impatient to see Les fight, started to turn against him. Then in February, Tex cabled to say that his bid for Madison Square Garden had failed. And then Les heard that he, in his absence and without any authority, O'Sullivan had been negotiating contracts, contracts in his name. Even, be, even being paid a $5,000 cash advance by Madison Square Garden's new owner. He left the tour, returned to New York and confronted O'Sullivan, who claimed that he'd done Les a favour dem and demanded 30% of his earnings from the contracts he'd negotiated. Les broke off relations with him and wrote to the papers, making it clear that O'Sullivan had never been his manager. Madison Square Garden's new owner wrote a new contract with Les and and he started training for his first bout there, scheduled for March the 5th. He'd been right about the money in the US. His share was to be $30,000. But on March the 2nd, 1917, three days before the bout, Governor Charles Whitman banned Les from boxing in New York State. Although Les made a personal appeal, Whitman refused to change his mind. So Les and Mick left for Cleveland, Ohio, only to be met with a headline in the local papers like, On your way, Darcy, we don't want slackers here. O'Sullivan had been there a few days earlier. The Ohio governor banned him as well. When Les tried to plead his case, he was met by an aide who said, When Washington speaks, we listen. He and Mick moved on to Memphis, but it was looking as though Les would never box in America. And then he had a visit from an irate boxing manager, Billy Hark, who'd received a letter from O'Sullivan threatening, threatening him if he dealt with Les. Hark took him, Les to see the mayor of Memphis, who cabled the secre Secretary of Defence, saying Les would join the Air Force Reserve if he could have three fights before completing his training. A cable came back the same day, giving Les permission to fight. He joined up and, overjoyed, phoned Winnie to tell her the good news. On April the 24th, Les began training for a bout for May the 7th, but three days later he collapsed and after initial, an initial assessment was taken to the Gartley Ramsey Hospital in Memphis, shown here. A doctor removed his tonsils and a dentist removed his two front teeth, 
but the infection in his tooth had entered his bloodstream. Remember, they had no antibiotics in 1917. Les told Mick not to worry Winnie or his mother, saying they'd only tell him how serious his condition was. They'd only tell them how, so seri how serious his condition was once he'd recovered. But he gradually deteriorated. News of his condition leaked out and was cabled to Australia. The next few weeks must have been terrible for Margaret Darcy, receiving encouraging cables from Mick, but reading news reports that Les was on death's door. On May the 20th, Mick Hawkins cabled Winnie, Les fading fast in Memphis, come at once. Winnie and her chaperone made a three-day dash across America by train, arriving on May the 23rd. Les Darcy, sergeant in the American Air Force Reserve, died in Winnie's arms on May the 24th. That's Les' story as we know it, but these questions have remained unanswered for a hundred years. Other British and Australian boxers were allowed to fight in America. Why was Les singled out and banned by three state governors, possibly with federal involvement? Why would they bother banning a foreign boxer? Could the Australian government have played a role? They all lead to my larger question, who shafted Les Darcy? A search of Chronicling America, the Library of Congress's online database of American newspapers, shows that on March the 6th, 1917, the Bridgeport Evening Farmer reported Governor Whitman as denying he'd called Les Darcy a slacker, but that if he returned to Australia, he'd be arrested as a, as a deserter, an opinion reached as a result of a careful inquiry made of an Australian official here. Very strange. As a British Dominion, Australia had no official representation in America in 1917. But Governor Whitman had no reason to make this up, so he must have been telling the truth. The Australian official must have been travelling incognito. He misled the Governor because although Les committed an offence against the War Precautions Act, it's a gross exaggeration to say that he would have been arrested as a deserter. So we can begin to build a profile of our shafter. He was an Australian official who was in New York in February, March 1917. He was very familiar with Les Darcy's case and he also contacted federal authorities and led them to wrongly conclude Les was a deserter, thereby shafting him. Who could it be? In an article on Les Darcy in the Sporting Globe in 1931, journalist called Will Lawless wrote... The man who pulled the strings on this side was said to have been a certain member of parliament who happened to be in America at the time. Hearkening to his master's voice, he did the dirty work. But as the parliamentarian has been gathered to his father's long since, I need not mention names. Assuming this rumour to be true, we can build on our shafter's profile. Our suspect now becomes an Australian parliamentarian who died before 1931 and did his dirty work on behalf of Master. But how to find him after a hundred years? In 1917, if a parliament parliamentarian left Australia, there would have been some kind of a send-off. And sure enough, a thorough search of Trove reveals that on December the 21st, 1916, the Lord Mayor of Sydney gave a farewell luncheon with 350 guests to honour the Honourable Charge Charles Gregory Wade, leader of the New South Wales Opposition, 
who was taking a holiday prior to taking up the post of New South Wales Agent General in London. Could Charles Wade be our shafter? Wade was an Australian parliamentarian who was travelling incognito in the US. He, did, he died in 1922, so we can tick those three boxes. Shipping timetables and other articles tell us that he was in America from January to the end of March 1917, travelling from west to east. According to the Australian Dictionary of Biography, he allayed his anxiety at crossing the Atlantic by buying gutta-percha life-saving suits, which he tested in the Hudson River. So he was in New York in February-March. Wade was one of the two politicians booed out of the ring before one of Les's titles defences, so he certainly knew Les's case thoroughly. In an interview on his arrival in London on March the 30th, 1917, Charles Wade said he'd met politicians in the USA, including Theodore Roosevelt and Secretary of State Robert Lansing. At this point, lawyers in the audience will be thinking, Roger, you haven't proven anything. Wade might have, might have been misquoted. Where's the proof that he met any of these politicians? More to the point, show us some evidence that they discussed Les Darcy's case. Luckily there, for us, there is some proof. Through this entry in Robert Lansing's diary of March the 3rd, which reads, Mr Wade, Australian government, on his way to London, called. So we know he met Lansing. And to prove they discussed Les Darcy's case, ask yourself this question. If I were Robert Lansing and a bloke I'd never met came to me claiming to represent the Australian government and making accusations against an Australian boxer, what would I do? I'd probably want to check out his story. And we can be very confident that, confident that he, Lansing did just that because we have this cable from the US Consul General in Sydney sent to Robert Lansing on March the 5th, 1917. It reads, Les Darcy alleged to have left Australia clandestinely American ship before conscription vote. Incident reported Luckenback Line, New York. Now, that, the dates of that, given the difference in, in dates between Australia and America, mean that that was virtually a, an immediate response. So it's likely that Lansing's question was labelled, or the cable was urgent. So Wade fits our profile pretty well. And a brief look at his background shows he had plenty of motive. Charles Wade was educated at King's School, Parramatta and Merton College, Oxford. Regarded as one of the finest wing three-quarters of his day, he played rugby for Oxford and represented England eight times. On returning to Australia, he became Crown Prosecutor, conducted inquiries into coal mine disasters and later was briefed by coal mine owners in the industrial court. With support from the Loyal Orange Institution and Australian Protestant Defence Association, he entered politics, soon being appointed New South Wales Attorney General, then Premier. He was so determinedly pro-conscription that in his farewell speech in Sydney, he said that he would do his best to satisfy the people of the United Kingdom that the recent referendum did not represent the will of the people. So he was very loyal, but I think his loyalty outweighed his mathematics. It's not hard to understand why he would have associated Les Darcy with the Irish Catholic miners who booed and counted him out of the ring in 1915. We can safely say, I believe, that Charles Wade, later Sir Charles, 
shafted Les Darcy. But one question remains. If Charles Wade was acting on, sorry, I skipped a slide there. If Charles Wade was acting on behalf of a master, who was it? In March 1917, Wade, on holiday to take up a posting as New South Wales Agent General in London, to meet senior American politicians as an Australian government official, he must have had some form of introduction. His immediate boss was New South Wales Premier William Holman, who wasn't a member of the Australian government. Wade's other possible masters are Prime Minister Billy Hughes or Governor-General Sir Ronald Munro Ferguson. As Australian Prime Minister, Hughes would probably have introduced Wade through the British Consul General in New York. But if that were the case, an Anglophile like Wade is likely to have mentioned meeting British officials in America. His other possible master is Governor-General Sir Ronald Munro Ferguson, who had a personal connection to Teddy Roosevelt. But who knows? What we can say with confidence, I believe, is that Les Darcy was shafted by Charles Wade, representing the Australian government. What harm would it have done for that government to have given Les Darcy a passport and trusted him to keep his word? Many years later, in recalling paying his respects to Les at the memorial service in San Francisco, a retired American middleweight said, when I saw that unmarked sleeping face the face of a kind, decent young man, I thought, will you and the Australians ever forgive us? I have never forgotten that face. We shouldn't forget Les Darcy either. Thank you. Roger, thank you. That was that was truly fascinating, and I, I love the cast of characters you brought to us and showed us on the screen, and particularly loved uh, also the the newspapers and the letters and so on that no doubt you found on trove through the National Library. Thanks very much. Look, um, look, we've we've got we've got lots of time for some questions, and we've got a couple of microphones um, poised at either side, ready ready to jump. So put up your hands and let's let's have some questions. Thanks. Uh, I think first was down here on the left. Uh, hi, thanks for the talk. Uh, now, did Snowy Baker, who was young enough and fit enough, ever volunteer for World War One? That's a very good question. Snowy actually um, uh, had a car accident and injured his back. And he tried publicly to... There was a lot of pressure on him to join up. And uh, at one of the stadium bouts, uh, he, uh, uh, he staged a um, uh, recruitment on st within the ring. And so people came up to be uh, checked medically and a spotlight went on to Snowy Baker and he came up onto the stage and was declared medically unfit. Two of his brothers did join up, uh, but Snowy didn't and... Later on, uh, um, after Les Darcy died, he and Macintosh were treated like lepers. People would cross the road to avoid them. And, uh, and anyway, he, Snowy then, the, the stadium closed and Snowy had to pursue a different career. And the career he pursued was as a movie star. And there are movies, actually you can still see them on, on, uh, in, in the Film and Sound Archive on their website. Um, and... He was, in those movies, he performed stunts like Jackie Chan. <laughs> and that was during the war. 
So does that, I think that answers the question. <laughs> Roger, uh, Dennis Blight. Hi, Dennis. I'm interested in the, in, in the language used at the time and what research you did to establish, because I know you've written some stuff in dialogue, as I understand it, as if it were a screenplay. And I'm interested to uh, learn what approach you took in imagining the words they'd be using. Um, you used the words slacker, uh, lariest, and ratbag. Now, I don't know whether they're your words, because I think I've probably heard you say them before <laughs> referring to me, uh, but, or were they words which... I think which I did, actually. <laughs> uh, were they words which were in common usage during Darcy's lifetime? Um, well, it's a difficult question. I think some of them were. Certainly the word slacker, he... he that appeared in the newspapers and that was what Whitman accused him of or was, was said to have accused him of. Um, so slacker, yes. Uh, Ratbag, I think I got that from reading uh, about Hugh D. McIntosh in a book by um, Keith Dunstan, which was entitled Ratbags. And he was the, one of the main ratbags. Uh, Larius, that is a quote. So, yes, I think they were words from that, that era. Um, but it was such a different era. I mean, you know, when you think that there was... Phones had only just become commonplace. Cars had only just become commonplace by the time Les Darcy died. There, were no, there was no radio. There were no television, obviously, or internet. So, very different time, and, and the language, I'm sure, was very different too. Thank you. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, you mentioned letters of recommendation, which were fairly common from government officials uh, here in Australia for people travelling overseas all the way up into the 1970s. Uh, you haven't mentioned, and I don't know whether your points of inquiry have ever touched on records that may have actually said where those letters of recommendation could possibly have come from, either here or or possibly even uh, within his own records. Sorry, I didn't quite understand the question. Okay. Uh, letters of recommendation. You mentioned three people that could have provided letters of recommendation as far as the, the contacts back in the United States were oh, concerned. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, yes, yes. Yep. Yeah. Intr introductions, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, Introduction. Yeah. Just wondering... Uh, did you must have made inquiries on that, where those yeah. inquiries well, had gone and, and yeah. how you were able to pursue them, both here or in the United States. Okay, so, well, the, the, um, there is no record of any meeting or any letters like that in Governor Whitman's uh, archive. I actually uh, got someone, a student in New York, to go and check, check it out and he couldn't find anything. Um, also, I contacted the Roosevelt Centre to see if there was any reference to Teddy Roosevelt, and again, there was nothing. The only one happened, the, the Lansing one, um, I contacted the, um, the... Oh, actually, I should... Sorry, thank you, you've reminded me of something. OK, so there are the acknowledgements, and uh, it was... It was the Office of Historian, US Department of State that provided the, the, the um, record in um, Lansing's diary and also sent me the copy of the cable from Australia to Lansing. 
Um, so that's how I found that one. But no, not that I know of. Uh, Munro Ferguson's contact or, or link to Roosevelt is quite a, an odd one. Um, and I found that through a, a letter that was in his um, archive here. There's a handwritten letter to Munro Ferguson from Teddy Roosevelt. And it refers to Bob, someone called Bob, who travelled round with, with Teddy Roosevelt. And it turns out that Bob is Robert Munro Ferguson, who was Ronald Munro Ferguson's brother. And they were both Scottish uh, aristocrats, I guess, and Munro Ferguson pursued a political career in Britain, and Robert went to America and became one of Roosevelt's Rough Riders and a, quite a close friend of Teddy Roosevelt's. So there was a link there. And uh, there are other letters and so forth. Munro Ferguson didn't get on well with Macintosh. And anyway, I could go on. But I hope that answers the question. Uh, Roger, I was wondering why you went down this journey. What um, wanted you to solve this, um, this issue? Okay. Well, it... it um, I had a I, I, back in the 70s I did a graduate diploma in film and television production and uh, uh, I pursued a completely different career but as I was about to retire my family tried to encourage me to go back to that so they paid for me to do an intensive script writing course and then I did that and, and I was looking around for a topic and my wife has a book group and once a year they invite the husbands and they do what they call a man book <laughs> and it happened to be on Les Darcy and at the end of that session one of them said gee this would make a great topic for a film so I decided to write a film script and I have written one and I got a professional assessment from the um, Australian Writers Guild it was about six pages and my wife will disagree with this but it came back I believe without a single positive comment <laughs> so I've got some work to do on the script, um, but that's that's really how it came about. I've got, uh, first of all, thanks for the talk. It was terrific, really interesting. I've got, first of all, a comment and then uh, a simple question. The comment really was, uh, in fact, by coincidence, this morning I was reading uh, a debate in England in 1912 led by the Times opposing Jack Johnson, the American black fighter, fighting an Englishman anywhere in England. And for me, it just was resonant of just how big the political context is yep. for Les Darcy and for boxing. And I'd, perhaps we don't really appreciate just uh, how economically valuable boxing was as a sporting commodity uh, in, the, in the very early 20th century. Boxing films alone were a huge yep. uh, turnover and, of course, boxing fights in particular between Americans and Australians. Um, my Question is, what uh, what became of Les Darcy's... Uh, was, was she his fiancée or sweetheart? And what uh, what became of her and what's her story? OK, well, the first the first one, I could actually show you a little segment. Um, you raised the issue of uh, Jack Johnson. Uh, Hugh D. McIntosh, the chap I mentioned, the rat bag, um, had a very interesting career, but he was the man who built the stadium, the Sydney Stadium, and the way he did it, was that at the t in 1908, I think it was, um, Roosevelt sent, Teddy Roosevelt sent the American fleet painted white around the world on a friendship tour. 
And basically, the idea was to, it was a friendship tour, but it was also to establish America's uh, growing military power. And it was coming to Sydney. And Hugh D. McIntosh was a caterer. And he found out that the, flight, the, the, um, the, the fleet was coming to Sydney. So he hired every entertainment venue in, venue in Sydney, or booked them for the week they were going to be there. And then he thought that it would be good to hold a box boxing match because the sailors would be interested. So he went to Rushcutters Bay where there was a market garden and he said to the chap who he looked, he was in an old, he dressed up in an old suit and he looked through the, through the wire at this garden and the owner came up to him and he said, oh, look, I'm trying to, I'm interested in a two-man entertainment for these visiting sailors and I'd like to rent this property. So he ended up renting the property for a, basically a, a, a pittance for five years and then three weeks later the trucks moved in and, and he built the stadium and he set up the, a boxing match was between Bill Squires and, um, and um, Tommy Burns. And as it turned out, only two sailors turned up because Squires had been beaten by, by Burns several times and they thought that the sailors all thought it was, the fight was going to be fixed. So the only two who turned up were drunk and they, they volunteered to fight anyone in the stadium. <laughs> but anyway, what happened was 15,000, I think it was, Australians turned up, so McIntosh discovered that he had a market. The next thing he did was to set up a fight between Tommy Burns and Jack Johnson. Tommy Burns was a Canadian, a fairly little guy, and Johnson was six foot six and just a ball of muscle. And you can actually see that fight on YouTube. Uh, and it's, it's quite amazing. But, but McIntosh promoted it on racist grounds. That fight couldn't have happened in America because they had a white champion and a black champion and they wouldn't, because of their, their racial issues, they wouldn't fight. So the, Johnson had been chasing Burns all around the world, buying a ticket, going to ringside and then challenging him from the ringside and Burns always turned him down. But McIntosh said to Burns how much would you be willing to, to or if, you know, if I set up a fight with Johnson, how much money would you want? And Burns nominated £6,000, which was a ridiculous amount of money, and McIntosh said, OK. And so he staged this fight, and that put Sydney centre stage in boxing in the world for that time, and it made it hugely popular in Australia as well. If it was already popular anyway. So um, that's essentially McIntosh's story. And it's the story of how, you know, that the racism... If you read, for example, um, this is... I hope I'm not going to offend anyone by saying this, but there was a quote from Tommy Burns's manager who said, when he was asked who was going to win, he said, um, Jack Johnson uh, will have... He's a coon, he'll have a... Like all coons, he's got a yellow streak, his will be a mile wide and Tommy will win easily. And actually, what, what happened was Tom, uh, Johnson absolutely um, flattened Burns. In fact, he was ridiculing him during the rounds and holding him out like this and talking to the crowd. And then in the, I've forgotten which round it was. He just went, just knocked him out. Um, and then before the bout, Johnson discovered how much Burns was getting and asked for more money. And Hugh D. McIntosh didn't like people, you know, welching on deals. So he went and got a 38 revolver from his desk, pointed it at, Burn at Johnson and said, if you're not in that ring in one minute, you dirty coon, I'll blow your brains all over the floor. 
Now, that's the kind of language that was used in those days and the attitudes of the people. And those words occur in the newspapers and, and so forth. It's really amazing to read it. Anyway, that's that question answered. The other one was about um, Winnie O'Sullivan. She later on married and uh, she had a son who became a priest and that son has donated some of the um, some of Les Darcy's, I think, a... a, a, a a bracelet or uh, a couple of um, a couple of things that Les Darcy gave to her to the National Library, uh, National Museum. So you can see them there. Sorry, I went on a bit there. Hope that's all right. All right, I think we've got time for one more. One more. Yep. Paul Arnold Roger. Oh, I'm up Paul. here. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was interested. You talked about Snowy Baker's uh, role as the owner of Stadiums Limited. I was under the impression that even though he may have been running it, that John Wren, who you probably have touched upon at various other times, was involved heavily with Stadiums Limited. Now, there is some thought some conjecture that Wren had a big bearing on whatever Snowy Baker did. Now, is there anything that you touched upon in your research that may have indicated that John Wren had something to do with the whole thing? Uh, <coughs> it's an interesting question. I... I the, the, the um, stadium, as I said, was originally set up and built by Hugh D. McIntosh. But he, he then, after a while, lost interest in that. He went and took over the Tivoli, Tivoli Theatre Circuit and he sold the Sydney Stadium to Stadiums Limited, which was set up by John Wren, Snowy Baker, Harold Baker, Snowy's brother, and there has been a suggestion that Macintosh still had, and I think he probably did, had some kind of financial interest in it. So it's true that John Wren was, I think he was one of the direct or the shareholders in, uh, and probably the main one, in Stadiums Limited. But I haven't read anywhere that he had a, an influence over Les Darcy other than two, two um, incidents. One, when Les Darcy fought in Melbourne, the, the Melbourne Stadium, and John Wren was obviously was based in Melbourne, and so they would have met. And Macintosh also met Darcy in Melbourne, I believe. But um, the other one was uh, when there was a suggestion that one of the fights might have been rigged, and Snowy Baker contacted John Wren about that, and John Wren said, if that's the case, if you go and talk to both the boxers... And if there's any suggestion, tell them that, that if there's any suggestion that this fight is rigged, all bets are off. So that's about the only connection that I know with John Wren. There may have been others, but I, and he may have been one of the businessmen together with Macintosh who wanted to organise that tour of America for Les, but I don't know. Okay. All right, thanks. Thanks, uh, Roger, very much. Look, to me, you're a, a natural and gifted storyteller, so please do have another go at that script. <laughs> Um, can't help but be successful.
Look, look, before I let you go tonight, my friends in the events team will get cranky with me if I don't mention the beautiful exhibition upstairs, Melodrama in Meiji Japan. It just opened today, so please go and have a look. It's both very beautiful and the stories behind the pictures uh, are really fascinating, so please do check that out. Also, I will plug the National Library's book published a couple of years ago called Boxing in Australia, which is a terrific book. I've given it to two of my relatives and they both loved it. So do come and um, purchase that from the bookshop. But please join me in thanking again Roger Lee.